So about a year and a half ago, um, I preached um, number four in a sermon series. Um, this, this sermon this evening, just to put it in concept, is number one. So I started at the end when I preached on Exodus about a year and a half ago, and now I'm going back to the first one. So I think then I preached a bit later, in, uh, a bit further on in Exodus 3, but now I'm going back to the beginning of this section, which is starting at chapter 2 and verse 23. As an introduction, well, firstly the title, Our Faithful God Links His Action to Our Prayer. Our Faithful God Links His Action to Our Prayer. At the end of Genesis, um, 430 years ago, plus something not ago, before our passage, the people of Israel were 70 people. They were Uh, Jacob and 70 members of his family who left Canaan when there was a famine and went down on Joseph's invitation to Egypt. Uh, Joseph had provided for Egypt and found and stored up food and the Jacob's family, the, the prototype Israelites, were looked after by him. A bit later, maybe 350 years into that 400 odd years in Egypt, a pharaoh came to power who didn't know about Joseph. Uh, his name was thought to be Achmosis, and he was not friendly towards the Israelites. He was afraid of their vast numbers and thought that if an enemy invaded, then the Israelites would um, join in with the enemy and turn against him. So Pharaoh oppressed them and ruthlessly made them slaves. Um, you can think of Egypt as, as a giant gulag for the Israelites. Life was terrible for them. And he even went on to get the midwives of Israel to kill every newborn boy that was born. However, the midwives feared God and they didn't do as he'd said. Moses is hidden by his mother. The babies were supposed to be thrown in the river, so in a way she wasn't disobedient. She put Moses into a basket and put that in the river. And Moses is rescued. He's brought up by Pharaoh's daughter as her own son. When he grows up, he sees his fellow Hebrews being persecuted. And he intervenes when he sees an Egyptian uh, beating a Hebrew. And he kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. Um, But this becomes known. The Hebrew who he saved obviously tells about this. And he's known to be a murderer even by Pharaoh, and has to flee Egypt. He then lives in Midian for 40 years as a shepherd and has no further thoughts, really, of, of saving the Israelite people from Egypt. He settles down and becomes a, a shepherd, gives no further thought to it. Back in Egypt, things are going from bad to worse, though. Uh, this Pharaoh, Achmosis, has died, and then it's believed... Pharaoh called Thutmose, not Ramesses, comes to power. And he treats the Israelites even worse. They're treated harshly, even for slaves. And it's then that they cry out to God for help. God hears their groaning and prayers and begins his rescue plan of the people of Israel. And in fact, it's the result of those prayers and the groanings of the people of Israel that Moses is then called by God and eventually leads his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. So 
there's a connection between those prayers there, those groanings by the oppressed Israelites, and with the Israelites eventually coming through the Red Sea into the Promised Land. In the, if you take a step back and look at the big picture so far of the, the Bible storyline, God had promised his people that he would make them as numerous as the stars. He would give them the land of Canaan as their everlasting possession. And there's a messianic prophecy through Abraham that all nations of the earth would be blessed in him. And God says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. So there's this ongoing promise towards the people of God. But it doesn't look like God is going to fulfill his promise. It looks like God's abandoned them because they're in this awful slavery to the Egyptians. So that's the background to the passage. And the big idea is that the faithful God links his action to our prayer. We're going to look at four points. Uh, Turn to God for help. God knows. God links our prayers with his action. And God answers prayers because he keeps his covenant promises. The first point is... Turn to God for help. Turn to God for help. The point is really that however weak or strong we are in our relationship with God, even if you have to ask for help, to cry for help, turn to God for help. You must turn to God for help. So we're looking at verses 23 to the start of 24. During those days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. The pharaoh, as we've said, had introduced harsh slavery about 350 years into their stay in Egypt. Um, They were struggling. And when he died, uh, after 40 years, it was then that the cry of the Israelites came up for help. And it just makes you wonder, really, why is it that the Israelites cry out at this time, not earlier? Perhaps the dying king, then, is just background information. Or it could be that with the death of the king, the Israelites thought that things would get better after their 40, 50, 60 years of terrible suffering. Um, But it didn't get better. Their suffering only got worse with the new king, with the new pharaoh. And we know later on in Exodus that when Moses goes to the Pharaoh and says, let the people go so they might worship for three days in the wilderness, Pharaoh replies that if the people are that idle, if they've got that much spare time, then they're not going to go and make sacrifices. They can not only make bricks for their building, but also have to go and gather the straw to make the bricks and they have to make the same amount of bricks as before even though they gathered the straw and when they failed they were beaten by their Egyptian taskmasters this beating of Israelite slaves was going on before it was an awful situation so back to verse 23 the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out to help well You know, although the elders of Israel worshipped and praised God later on when they knew what God was going to do, and Moses showed them miraculous signs, there's no indication really that the people of Israel had much of a prayer life before then. It was only when things got really bad after 40 years of persecution and when the old king died and nothing got better that they then turned to God in prayer. 
You know, it's only when they didn't have the capacity to do anything else, when they're at their wit's end, that they turn to God in prayer. And you know, when they turned to God in their distress, God heard their groaning. He heard their cry. And he had mercy on them. And the groaning, the language used about them groaning in their prayers, it, it shows you that their prayers were not only painful, they were at their mistreatment, but they weren't really like a specific getting down on your knees and praying or praying in church as we might pray. They were a desperate prayer. And it reminds us of Romans 8, where the Spirit helps us in our prayers when we don't know what to pray for. It says the Spirit himself groans in ways too deep for words. And then when we groan, we cry out, the Spirit works in our hearts and interprets our anguished prayers in accordance with the will of God. Uh, The commentator says the Spirit himself expresses to God those necessary petitions that perfectly match the will of God. Romans 8 really reflects the situation there in, in their crying out for prayer in a way that is just pure um, distress, pure anguish. And in those situations, when, if we're honest, we're often in, well, we can be in those situations too. We don't always pray perfect evangelical prayers when we're in pain or in anguish or mental distress, which in some ways is worse than physical pain. You know, we groan, we, we cry out um, briefly in, in words that don't make a lot of sense. But God is able to assist us even then uh, with those sorts of quick or distressed prayers because he interprets them. And the Holy Spirit makes petition on our behalf to God. It's God even helps our cry for help. You know, often, especially under COVID, you know, people have really struggled. Mental health is a big thing that's come up in the news. You know, it's, we might walk into church and everything looks okay and we look fine and we don't ever tell anybody how we feel. But, you know, underneath, people are struggling. Maybe here they are. Um, certainly out in the community people are struggling with lockdown and with things like that to some people it hasn't made much difference but to a fair few people it's ended their work their means of support um, their chances their opportunities their relationships marriages have ended there's a lot of very difficult things going on in society at the moment and it's a comfort to think that even to people who can't articulate prayers properly, that God even helps our cry for help. He intercedes for us um, when we groan. So however, however weak or strong you are, we're to cry for help. And God just doesn't help us in, by, um, with the groanings. He also helps us whatever stage and state in our spiritual life is like. Pharaoh's an example of somebody who hardened his heart progressively. Um, He was given ten chances, really, with ten plagues. 
And the Bible says that sometimes he hardened his heart and sometimes God hardened his heart. But it, it was a process. And he had an opportunity to repent at every stage but didn't take it. He set himself against God and progressively hardened his heart more until he was unable to turn to God. He was utterly given over to evil and rebellion against God. And sometimes when we're not close to God, we harden our hearts against God. You know, yeah, even us Christians sat in an evangelical church. We harden our hearts against God. We refuse him and refuse his spirit. And we're cold towards him. But even there, even in the very pit of our spiritual low, God, God wants us to pray to him. And even if we can't express that prayer, even if it's just help me have a desire to pray, sometimes we don't even care, you know. Some people get so low in their Christian life, they don't even care that they're that low. And God can help even then. And we're to turn to him and ask him to incline our hearts towards him and to um, help us to desire him and want to pray. Cast all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. You know, it's inconceivable that the God who has done so much for us in the past, whatever stage we are in our life, would not have concern for us now, even in the low bits. The Christian life is like that. You know, peaks and troughs, but going on to maturity and more faith as God gives it. But it's inconceivable that when we're down in the pit, God would, God would cease his care for us. He doesn't. His love for us is steadfast and his compassions never fail. So turn to him. Cast all your anxieties on him. And ask God to incline your heart towards him and mumble your plea for help. Even if you can only a little bit turn to God, then ask God to help you be warm towards him and incline your heart towards him. 1 Kings 5 says, May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments. That's, even there, there's an acknowledgement that an asking that a God who will not leave us nor forsake us and a request that he may incline our hearts towards him. Whatever their spiritual condition, and it wasn't good, the people of Israel did turn to God and groaning and in their suffering and asking for help. However weak or strong you are in your relationship, Ask for help to cry for help, whatever situation you're in. My second point is that God knows. Turn to God in prayer. It's not as, as if God doesn't know about the circumstances you're in, even if you think God has abandoned you. In the text, if we look at verse 25, we see it's simply put, God saw the people of Israel... And God knew. God knew. I think that's one of my new favorite verses in the Bible. He saw the people of Israel and God knew. Of course God knew. God knew in advance the suffering that the Israelites would go through. Let me read Genesis 15 to you. Then the Lord said to Abram, 
Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. Right back in Genesis 15, God foretold the suffering of the Israelites hundreds of years in advance of it. But he also foretold the rescue that would later take place. And even that the Israelites would come out of Egypt and they would plunder the Egyptians as they went, effectively, by taking the jewelry from their neighbors. So they would be blessed and rescued. God's not ignorant of their situation ever. It wasn't as though God had left them, even though the Bible's quiet about that long period of time. God knew them and he hadn't, wasn't ignoring them. He was never far off from them. And you know, God was never far off from Moses, even in those 40 years where his bid for leadership had failed by being, having to run from Egypt. He settled down to being a shepherd and raising a family. But God hadn't left him. He was never far off. A bit further in chapter 3, verse 16 of Exodus... The passage says, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. I have observed you. He knows God. It's a confirmation that God's been with them in the past and he's very much aware of their sufferings and sorrow. You know, God's heart must have been breaking for his people It's not as though he was an uncaring God, indifferent to their suffering. It's not as though he's unloving. You might wonder for an explanation as to why he did leave them so long there in suffering. Well, there's no 100% reason, but Genesis 15, 16 does say that, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. During that time, the sin of the natives of Canaan was building and building, and they were sacrificing more and more children, and their sexual immorality was running riot. And it was about to reach its peak. And when it reached its peak, then God brought the Israelites into that land, and the Israelites were God's judgment on them, for they were supposed to exterminate that people for all their hideous sins. It may not be a complete answer, But God had his reasons for allowing their suffering to go on for a number of years. It was all part of his plan. But it wasn't as, even so, it wasn't as though he was unaware of their plight. God saw the people and knew. The Lord is near to each one of us to call on him in truth. You know, this God knowing, it reminds me of Revelation 2 and the letters to the churches. Because they all begin with the words, I know. The first one, the church at Ephesus, God says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you can't bear those who are evil, but have tested them and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the first love that you had. I know So God knows what they're enduring, and he says that for each of the seven churches. He knows the character of the church. He knows 
all the things that we struggle with at our church, all the difficulties we have. He knows all the positive characteristics that we have. And he knows the negative characteristics. God knows about us in this church. I know. But you know, God says, to finish this section, God says, he is not ashamed to be called our God. God knows. He knows all our heart, the positives, the ups and the downs, the negatives, the problems. But he's not ashamed to be called our God. How wonderful. God knows. Thirdly, God answers prayers because he keeps his covenant promise. God answers prayers because he keeps his covenant promises. Verse 24 of our passage, uh, Exodus 2, says, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. You know, we can be assured that God answers our prayers because he is a covenant-keeping God. He remembers his covenant. Well, what is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement between two parties, two groups. When you get married, you enter into a covenant, and promises are made by both husband and wife. And as we saw from this morning's sermon on Hebrews 9, that Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, and it's a testamental covenant where the benefits are distributed when the testator dies. I learned some new things this morning. Thank you, Roger. So the benefits flow when the um, person in charge of the covenant dies. Normally, a covenant is between two people of equal status. Um, I'll keep my side of the agreement if you keep yours. Um, Marriage is like that. Two equal partners with slightly different roles agree to keep their part of the covenant. But it's an equal agreement. Each has to put as much work in as the other. But when God makes a covenant, it's unequal because it's a covenant of grace. It's entered into by sheer unmerited favor on his part. (coughs) God doesn't have to do anything, but he desires to do it because he wants a relationship with his people. He makes a covenant where all the onus is on him and not on us. He made a covenant with Abraham where he said he would bless Abraham and make him a great nation. He said, I will be your God. Abraham didn't have to do anything other than believe. So it was a very unequal covenant. And it was greatly illustrated later in Genesis 15 when God made his his covenant practical with Abraham. The passage tells us that Abraham makes a sacrifice, and he cuts all the animals in half. And normally, both parties would pass between the animals as a commitment that they would keep the the agreement. Or they would be killed like the animals if they failed to keep their side. But it's only the presence of God that goes between the animals, showing his um, unilateral commitment to keep the covenant. It didn't depend on Abraham or his descendants. It only depended on God God swears by himself, and he is the ultimate authority, so that covenant is secure in every way, because it's him that's keeping the covenant, not us. And therefore, 
We have every confidence that God will keep his promises. It's such a striking illustration of the God keeping his promises. <coughs> Though we go through suffering, God will never let us down because he has promised. When Moses is called at the burning bush, he's beginning to act and fulfill his covenant promise. He's demonstrating his action and his promise-keeping. Now, when we, uh, we are under the new covenant under Christ, and again, that's wonderfully one-sided. John says, in this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sin. It's not that we've loved God, it's that he's loved us. God's done everything. He was a sacrifice. All we can do, like Abraham, is to repent and believe. And that's all. So God keeps, he initiates his covenant, and God keeps his covenant. The new covenant is all, all on the work of Christ, which we saw this morning, the, the perfect sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice. It's all done. It's all on that. Our security And our assurance that God answers prayers is all on God because he keeps his covenant. He keeps his promises. Uh, Fourth point is, God links our prayers with his action. God links our prayers with his action. Uh, In the text, we've looked at the Israelites crying out desperately to God and God heard their groaning, verse 24 When we move on to chapter 3 and verse 1, the story shifts back to Moses. So far, the life of Moses has been one of preparation, but God has started to act. God is starting to act on his promises and to deliver. Through Moses, God starts to answer the Israelites' prayer now. It's wonderful that there's a direct link between the prayers and the groanings of the Israelites And the call of Moses at the burning bush. We see God acting on behalf of those praying. Even more incredible, as we've seen, that there's a direct link between that praying, the call of Moses, and the deliverance of around three million Israelites. So it's worth praying to God about things because he does answer prayer. You know, a lot of us are so downtrodden, and beaten up by life sometimes, especially during this period of COVID, that people have given up hope of all joy and no longer even pray for things because they seem so far out of reach. But we are to pray for things, even if um, they don't come to fruition straight away. Um, Just as a personal testimony, people know that I had a kidney transplant eight years ago. But I've been, I was ill for 22 years before that. I was ill from when I was 18 and uh, actually 24 years. And I prayed, people prayed for me, churches prayed for me. And, but I stayed the same for a while and then gradually declined until my kidney function was about 8%. And then my uh, brother stepped in and gave me a kidney. I had prayed for years and years and years to be well, and I hated being, you know, not able to do everything that I wanted. So I still led a, a good life, still even did sport and things, but I was just tired a lot of the time. And yet, 
boom, all of a sudden, you know, God steps in. I don't even have to go on to dialysis or wait for anything. God moves my brother, to, who was a, was a young parent, um, to step in and give me a kidney. And it's a good match. And, you know, I've been fantastic for eight years. So God answers prayers, not all, always immediately, but it's worth praying because God answers prayer. We sometimes forget because things take so long. You know, we, we need a life in, individually and in the church of a vibrant spiritual life of prayerfulness and power because God does answer. When Paul came, he said, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power you know, to be a witness, we need to, the witness is us. The word has power and authority of its own. But we who deliver it and live our lives are also the witness. So we're to live lives in demonstration of the spirit and of power to imitate Paul. Thessalonians said, our gospel did not come to you only in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know, when you go and speak to your neighbor next door, you are the gospel. It's you. You know, whatever words you say can be invalidated if you're horrible and not loving and neighborly. Uh, that's a rebuke to all of us. We are the gospel. We're to lead prayerful lives. And God wants us to pray. God can intervene directly without prayer and do amazing things even if we don't pray but he designs to do it through prayers Matthew Henry said when God designs mercy he stirs up prayer Daniel is a good model for this because in Daniel 9 he perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah namely 70 years that must pass uh, before the end of that period of exile. So God had ordained 70 years in exile for the Israelites. And then they would be free to come back to Jerusalem. Yet he turned his face to the Lord God. Seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. He knew the 70 years were soon going to be up. But he prayed anyway he was stirred up to pray by God, even though God decreed it would end. Because when God designs mercy, he stirs up prayers. God wants us to pray for things, even if they seem to be ordained. Even medical procedures and heart surgery on, on Wednesday, <clears throat> we have the NHS, but God wants us to pray for these things. Because it shows a dependence on him. Prayer shows us as needy and God as utterly mighty and full of all the resources on heaven and earth. It acknowledges our need before him and our dependence on him. It even happens in Ezekiel. Thus says the Lord your God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them to increase their people like a flock. God wants the house of Israel to ask God for things. The God who appoints these deliverances, he also appoints that they should be the fruit of prayer. It's just the way God works. 
When he designs mercy and intervention, he stirs up prayer. Jonathan Edwards said, when God has something great to accomplish for his people, it's his will that it should be preceded by extraordinary prayers of the people. God is fully capable of stepping in unasked and sometimes does in our lives, but he has designed a direct link between our prayers and his action. He appoints that his action should be a, a fruit of our prayer. Because we're his people, we're not autonomous robots. We're, we're to serve him and to love him and to pray for him things dependently on him because it glorifies God when we do that. The big idea is our faithful God links his action to our prayer. Turn to God for help. You must, even if you are asking for help to cry out to God, turn to him. Because he knows, he knows every position of our life, even the pit of the spiritual lows. And even if we don't care or desire him, he knows. So ask him and turn to him in prayer. He answers the prayers because of his covenant promises. Our, our salvation is utterly on God, not on us. He loves us and has committed himself to love us eternally. He is not ashamed of us, so ask him. And he links his prayers with his action. He wants us uh, to pray, our prayer to be the, to be the fruit of his action. Amen.